and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, friends. Good morning. My name is Dan DeCrisio. I'm one of the elders here at City Church Eastside. Great to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Great weather out there, of course. Uh, in our home, in the last week or two, we've been revisiting the seminal album, Songs from the Big Chair, from the band Tears for Fears. Actually, just uh, last weekend, my son and I were learning the intro to the song, Head Over Heels, one of my favorite songs from them. I played the song for him, and he was like, uh, Dad, what, what is this? And I was like, well, this is the same band that makes that song from that viral TikTok thing uh, or YouTube thing, Skibbity Toilets. And he was like, oh, yes, Tears for Fears. I know that. I'm like, how did you know that? But you're probably stuck on Skibbity Toilet right now. Like, what are you talking about, Dan? What's a Skibbity Toilet? Yes, this is a YouTube series where there's a battle between anthropomorphized toilets and anthropomorphized, which is a word I always struggle in saying, uh, video cameras that makes absolutely no sense. Actually, here's a picture of it. Yes, that says it all right there, friends. Supposedly, DreamWorks is making a movie starring Dwayne Johnson and, wait for it, Elon Musk about skibbity toilets. I'm not sure if this is fake news. Let's hope that it is. But this battle is carried out not to some ripping rock song from, like, Van Halen or Metallica, but actually, tears for fears. <laughs> Everybody wants to rule the world, if you know that song. And here's the dilemma. Are you on the side of the toilets or are the camera-headed people? Actually, I have no idea because it makes completely no sense, except the fact I love that tears for fears song and record. We may approach today's scripture with a similar question. You're like, what is that? What's going on here? What's going on here with, with what we see in, uh, with Jesus and the scribes in the temple? I mean, it seems like they're asking him an earnest question. And he's seemingly deflecting or maybe being sarcastic. Is that what's really going on, though? I don't think so. Today, friends, we're going to explore authority. Authority. In today's postmodern post-truth, post-Christian world, doesn't that word authority just kind of rub us the wrong way? It makes us uncomfortable, right, to hear that. But it shouldn't. It shouldn't. I think this is where Jesus is challenging us here. He's challenging us to come clean around this word and say, ask, whose authority are you under? Whose authority are you under? Who are you submitting to? And as Christians, are we more and more living under the authority of Jesus or 
some other authority in our lives. How's that working out for us? I propose the authority of Jesus does a few things. It it exposes a dilemma for us that forces us to make decisions and then make disciples. To quote the Rush song, Free Will, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Dilemmas, decisions, and disciples. So let's just jump into it here. You know, we've been in the book of Mark since I think 1985. Probably since that song from Tears for Fears came out. You know, uh, so much of that book, uh, Mark, is about the authority of Jesus. And not just this passage, which is explicitly about the authority of Jesus. So many of the interactions that Jesus is having with his disciples, with the scribes, the Pharisees, all of the signs and the miracles. It is forcing people, uh, uh, forcing people here in this world today and in the text to ask a question. Is authority, is Jesus' authority all in his head? Is it made up? Or is it actually from God? Actually, I think it was C.S. Lewis who turned this dilemma into a trilemma that Jesus' claims about his authority. For him to make a claim like that, he either has to be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. The first two have no credibility or authority, of course, but Lord has supreme authority and implications for us in our lives that we must face. We know that Jesus' own words about his authority, um, he said himself, it didn't come from him, it actually was given to him by the Father of God, by Father God, not the Father of God, (laughs) creating new things here today, new categories We take the Father God and that authority given to Jesus in faith. But that can kind of be hard to believe in sometimes, right? It can be hard to trust in. I mean, and Mike talked about this. Scott talked about this recently. You know, even the disciples were still blind to it. And they had Jesus right in front of them. In spite of seeing Jesus perform the miraculous in front of their faces. They even seem to forget what Jesus said about himself. Also, we talked about this earlier in the series, way back in Mark 2, 9, when his authority was first questioned. Jesus said this, we'll put it up on the screen. Which is it easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, take up your mat and walk. Get out of here. Go home. Of course, God can only forgive sins, and God can only do these types of miracles, and Jesus is making the connection here quite explicitly where his authority comes from, that he is the Son of God, and he has been given all authority by Father God. The case for Jesus' authority here, friends, has been building for a few years. Actually, it's been building for thousands of years. You just go all the way back through Scripture, through the prophets, through the covenants, all the way back to creation. We see the promises that someone's going to come in the future with authority and are going to remove the barrier, remove the shame, remove the problem in this world and bring reconciliation, comfort, like we saw foretold in the Isaiah passage we read a little earlier today. But now it's getting uncomfortable, right? 
Oh, so much of the gospel is a lot of people are made uncomfortable, aren't they? It's getting uncomfortable for who? Those with earthly authority, the religious elite. Old, tender, and mild Jesus in the last weeks of his ministry and life has become the roaring lion, as Scott recently talked about. The roaring lion. And he's clearly challenging the authority of the religious elite. He's turning the tables on them. Actually, just a little while before this scripture, he was literally turning over tables in the money changers, in the temple. The folks are mad at Jesus. Why? Because he's created a problem for them. He has created a problem. They serve at least two masters, potentially a lot more than that. Two masters. They got to play nice with the Romans who are in the sovereign authority politically. They got to play nice with the people as well, too, because the Romans don't want some insurrection happening. Jesus' authority is undermining what? Their control. And they are mad. Can you identify with that? Undermining their control. They're learning, this is kind of getting out of control. And so the question uh, to Jesus is actually a lie. It's a trap. It's not out of curiosity. It's a trap. They're trying to trap them, get them in trouble so they can bring them on what charges and get rid of them. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't directly answer their question, but brings up good old cricket-eating John the Baptist. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, because it says in our scripture, as Andrew read here, he was, he was widely recognized as a prophet of God. He was trusted. He had great support among crowds. Jesus brings him up, and I'm sure the religious elite had one of those, why'd you got to bring him into this kind of moments? Why'd you have to bring him up? I mean, have you ever had one of those moments before where, where you're trying to make an argument and then someone brings something into it, a, a person or a thing, or maybe that dumb thing you did way back in the day, and it sort of undermines your argument, and you're kind of like, why did you have to bring that into this? So Jesus did. Jesus questions the religious elite. Um, he focuses the argument there around his question uh, not on actually what he has said, but what some trusted prophet has actually said about him. We see that here in John one twenty nine. What does old John the Baptist say about Jesus when he meets him? He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, as it says in the text here, the religious elite are faced with quite a dilemma. They say that John the Baptist's ministry is true and godly in their answer to Jesus, and then that implies that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. Or they deny that and face the crowds. How did that work out for King Saul? Not all that well. Capitulating to the people. They were scared of them. They were worried about capitulating. And so they pled the fifth. They pled the fifth. They chose not to choose. And in choosing, they still have made a choice to trust more in man and fear man and earthly things rather than heavenly things. And you can see Jesus, the wisdom in his answers. Like, well, why am I going to tell you about heavenly things if you're not going to answer this question? That was... Uh, feels pretty ancient. We said in the ancient of days. feels like a long time ago. That was 2,000 years ago. Are we any different today? 
I know I keep referencing that Rush song, Free Will. Just a little plug for mine and Mark's band. We're playing Porch Fest next Saturday, 5 o'clock, and we will play the song, Free Will, if you want to hear it. Come join us. If you know that song, it goes on to say, I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. Hmm. That feels, that feels good in our culture today, right? A clear path, not under any authority, freedom. I mean, there's a lot of songs about being free, right? Freedom, Rage Against the Machine, I Want to Break Free, Queen. We're a band that's name was actually free. They sang what? All right now, I guess because they were free. That was a joke. Question is, are we truly ever free? Especially using the world's definition of freedom. I mean, it's kind of like when you ask a friend or spouse what they want for dinner, and they respond with, I don't really care, you're free to choose. And you're like, okay, well, how about Fellini's? And they're like, no, I don't want, I want to go to Fellini's. And are like, well, how about Farm Burger? And you're like, I just had a burger last week. I guess you were not free to actually choose, right? And that's our culture. We love to say and, and think, oh, I'm not bound, from, bound to any ideologies or religious authorities in my life. I'm totally a free thinker. But are you? Everyone has sort of their definition of righteousness, of what is good, right, and true in your lives, whether you're a Christian or not or you know, it doesn't matter. Whether that idea that you have about righteousness comes from a, cistern, a system of religion, a political system, a social system, a family system, a cultural system, it can become an authority in our lives. We invest in it. We promote it. We put it on a yard sign and put it in our, in our front yard. We give it power. Said another way, we can trust in it. We can trust in it. Every day we make decisions around the loves and trusts we have in our lives. It's our normative, our loves and trusts. You could call it our state of love and trust if you need a Pearl Jam reference here this morning. Every day, every day we make these decisions. Like me, even as a believer, every day I need to evaluate my loves and trusts. Pastor Tim Keller taught on this frequently when he was talking about idols. Really, idols are those things that we give authority to, power to. He says this. Many of us say, and we'll put this on the screen, Oh, I trust in Jesus and nothing else. But what is your heart functionally trusting? What does it actually trust? What does it actually rely on? Here's the question we need to ask. Has something besides Jesus taken title to my heart's functional trust? It's functional preoccupation. It's functional loyalty, service, and delight. For the religious elite friends in our text this morning, we can see that they clearly feared and functionally trusted in the people because they, they didn't want to lose their earthly authority of being in charge. That's what they trusted in. And we, you know, we can very easily point fingers. We can look outside the church, point our fingers at the narcissistic culture, obsessed with fame, social media, celebrity, money, success, meritocracy, sex, fill in the blank. 
And we could kind of say to ourselves, snarkily, if that's such a word, you think you're all free, but you're just serving those masters. And they'll crush you when you don't get what baby wants. Hmm. But are we any different in the church? Are we any different here in the church? Friends, let's just go back through maybe some of the decisions we've made in the last week or in the last couple of months as it relates to money, sex, alcohol, work, children, relationships, education, our behavior, even our feelings around power, comfort, control, things like that. Has it been based on a love and trust in Jesus? Will it crush us if these things fail us or they don't give us what we want? As Scott always used to say, I don't hear this that often anymore, but we're going to ask a simple diagnostic question. There are things, or are these things, I should say, are these things having more power over your life and holding more sway over your hearts than Jesus? If so, then... The diagnosis is that's an authority and that's an idol. And why is this especially important? Well, everybody might want to rule the world, but these authorities that we give power to want to rule over our hearts first. First step in ruling the world, allow these things to have power in our lives. And the reality is they don't have any real intrinsic power. We actually give them power. Oops. We give them power. They don't give a crap about you and me. It's kind of like when people say, the universe will provide. The universe will provide. The universe doesn't give a damn about you and me. But Jesus does. He does. You know what the cool thing is? Is that as our love and trust, our state of love and trust with Jesus increases the power of these authorities in our lives decrease. They have less power. We are less anxious. We receive rest when we give up the power and we allow him to be the power in our lives. And Jesus says this, actually, his own words in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for our souls. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus brought the, uh, bought this rest for us. He procured it. He sacrificed himself for us so that we could receive this, that we would have a new authority in our lives. A new authority that intimately knows, as it says in Hebrews, our struggles and our issues and can identify with us because he is fully God and fully man. But at the same time transcends, is above, you know, the morass and the issues that we deal with in this world and then gives us power on high to deal with the morass and the thorns and thistles in this world. It reorients us, this love. This is actually what we celebrate on Christmas because this is the gift that Jesus gives us in our lives. And it's a gift, friends, for us here that is ever-present and ever-accessible. It's at our fingertips. We just have to decide for it to be our functional trust. 
We just have to make a decision that we functionally trust it, that it becomes our state of love and trust and not the other authorities. So friends, on this day of rest here today, for our lives, let us decide again if it is a decision you've made in the past to make the Lord Jesus our functional trust. And if you don't necessarily believe that, walk in the door today, maybe it's the first time you believe this. And I encourage you, try it out this week. And it be your state of love and trust, believing that Jesus, Jesus gives you this power that you have to reorient your life, to depower the authorities that drive us frickin' batty that we know are not good, right, and true. Now, I've told you this story before, and I'm getting older, so I get to tell stories over and over again. About nine years or so, we paused our men's discipleship groups. Uh, we were doing these discipleship groups at the church, these nights, um, where we really had an opportunity uh, to speak to all the men within the church, and then also give you know, people that have never maybe spoke in front of a crowd an opportunity to speak and prepare a message maybe for the, the first time. And so this week that was coming up was my turn, and I think it was on cheerful giving. Some of you probably remember when we did this back in Stove Works. Cheerful giving. Problem is, earlier that day that I was to speak, our daughter Genevieve went into CHOA. Uh, she was having problems with her ki- kidneys, and a bacterial infection got the best of her. Uh, and she was going to need some medication and I think surgery as well, too, a little bit of light surgery. I was faced that morning with a decision Do I go and back out on my speaking opportunity, or do I tough it out? And go and do it and neglect my wife and daughter. You ever see the movie Elf before? You know, that scene in Elf where, you know, they're making the pitch. Where he's about to make the pitch to the, the boss. And Buddy's in trouble. Buddy the Elf is in trouble. And, and you know, he says to son, no, I'm sorry, I have to leave. And that, and that boss goes, you're going to be finished. You're going to be finished. Don't you walk out of that door. Well, you know, I'm an Enneagram 6, so I put more pressure on myself to be loyal. I I had this vision that Scott's going to be like, DeCrucio, you're never going to speak in this church again. You're out of here. Even though that's absolutely not reality, but, you know, it's kind of the dark sides of our personality sometimes make these things up. We put our own pressure and expectations on ourselves, and that's what I did. So I scribbled some notes together that morning, and I showed up. I'm loyal. I'm going to tough it out in the face of these circumstances. Genevieve and Alicia will be fine. I chose the guys of this church over my wife and child. And I delivered the worst talk of my life. It was horrible. So bad, Scott joked later, he goes, I might never invite you back here. And he wasn't talking about church, of course. He was talking about speaking. At least I thought, I think you were. If you've been around City Church for a while, you know Mike, Scott, others have talked about kairos moments. Kairos moments, those pregnant moments of time that likely gives birth to some insights, some opportunities for what? For repentance and then renewal, inviting the gospel in. And what usually happens, you know, it matures us. We become wiser through these experiences, of course, when we walk in the Spirit. But it wasn't that moment right there. It wasn't that moment. Actually, a few months later, I was having uh, lunch with the wizard known as Greg Birch. Some of you know him. 
And he asked me some question like, hey, you know, a couple months ago when you were doing that talk, what do you think you could have done better? And I think I answered in some like technical terms, like, oh, I could take better notes, I could better organize my thoughts and stuff like that. And then he brought up my decision to choose the church over my family. It was kind of like how Jesus brought up John the Baptist. It was one of those like, I chose keeping the appointment versus Alicia and Genevieve. And then Greg said in his great southern drawl, he goes, hey, Dan, by doing that, what are you discipling people into? He goes, Dan, by doing that, what are you discipling people into? What are you leading people into? These men. They're supposed to be learning something from you. And you just chose your speaking engagement over your family. Are you driven or drawn, as he likes to say? That was my Kairos moment, friends. That was the moment. What a great question. What are we being discipled into? And what are we discipling others into? And the question is, is what is that? Is it putting more and more of ourselves under the authority and lordship of Jesus? That's a, one of the ways that we describe discipleship here at City Church. Is, are we putting our lives more under his authority and his lordship? Enjoying him. Enjoying our relationship with God. Is Jesus more and more Lord? Or are the idols and the authorities of this world more and more Lord over our lives. You know, there's a lot of pressure these days on the uh, Orthodox Church. And when I say Orthodox, I don't mean Eastern Orthodox. I mean just a church that remains true to Orthodoxy or, or right teaching, sound doctrine. You know, on one hand, we have all of these pressures to be all about truth, not about compassion. It's truth, it's doctrine, it's right teaching. Not about compassion and love. But then on the other side, it can be all about compassion and forbearance and patience and not at all about truth. Friends, important note, it's not either or. <laughs> it's not either or. It's both and. Because Jesus, the one whom we are disciples of and want to be discipling people into came speaking and living his life and giving us the power to live in truth and speak in truth and love. Truth and love. Both sides of the coin. And if we were to be his disciples and make other disciples, as it says in the Great Commission, we were to be doing the same thing. Truth in love. But... We can only really do that if we don't fall for the dilemma. <laughs> and we answer the question. That we don't fall for the dilemma and answer the question. That in faith, is Jesus the authority that we are living under and submitting to and enjoying? And are we discipling others to do the same? Oh, let us rest in that here this morning, that we don't have to be slaves to these other authorities. For Jesus gives us actually true freedom in his gospel. Let us pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your gospel and the freedom you give us. Lord, it's amazing that by calling you an authority and living as such that you're our functional trust, we actually receive freedom. Freedom from all the thorns and thistles and entanglements, as, as Mike preached about last week. The entanglements... And the pressures that the world wants us to submit to, Father. 
we can live differently. We can enter your rest, Lord, and give that rest away to our friends and our neighbors and all of the places that you put us into. Uh, Father, let us taste that and rest in that and enjoy that here today, this day of rest, our Sabbath, that you give to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we do here every week, we have an opportunity to...